Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a Sabadika. podcast shared Hello by David Roiland. Daily Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent where we study the and words the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Six of the book series, Learn the words and of practice the, the teachings of Gautama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. But to also, support this, this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, on that retreats, and online learning resources and then to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, that you guys here's have our teacher to, to share more. Chapter. We're going to be doing 10 chapters today, 31 through 40. And the way that we start our program and the way that we start this class is we start the class with a meditation in order to prepare the mind, in order to help it to focus and retain the teachings of the Buddha so that you can then apply them in your daily life. If you were to just be in a class and you didn't meditate, you would still gain some benefit. But by kind of preparing the mind a bit prior to class, you can then retain the teachings for longer. So this is a great way prior to classes, prior to reading if you're going to do some reading or learning in the buddhist teachings but you can also do this if you're going to an important meeting like a business meeting or maybe a court appearance or maybe you're about to have an important discussion with somebody that you feel the emotions are there just a little bit you might decide to do some meditation prior before you engage in any kind of important aspects of life like a business meeting a court appearance a really impactful conversation that you're about to have with somebody so i'd like to invite all of you to join for meditation and then afterwards we'll start with our polycan in an english study group where we'll study each chapter 31 through 40. so go ahead and take your position i'll just give some very basic guidance here since the people who typically join this class are people who have been studying a bit longer, maybe have a meditation practice developed and established. So typically I don't need to do as much guidance in this particular meditation. So just go ahead and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. And then we'll do chanting. And then on the other side of chanting, I'll add a bit of guidance. Nap-mo-er-ha-sa-bha-ka-wa-to 
steady, consistent breath. Breathing in and out. Focus the mind on the air coming into the nose, either the sound of the air or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Breathing in and out. Whenever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and let you do the work to focus the mind on the breath. And wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. And out.
We'll just look to move forward in sharing the teachings from today's class, which starts with chapter 31. The way that we do our class is we read each chapter. There's a student or volunteer, sometimes me, that reads through each chapter. And then after we read the chapter, I'll share some teachings with you guys on that particular chapter. And then after that, we'll open up to any questions you guys might have. We have 10 chapters to discuss in today's class, and I'll just turn things over to all of you, and we can go through the class from here. Hello, teacher. Let's go to Kaida for the first chapter. All right. Thank you, Pawson. A great gift. Monks here, a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. 
This is the first gift, a great gift, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which is not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. And this is the stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly ripening peacefulness, conductive to heaven that leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. Do I just skip over that part? You can read you can read that or, part, uh, Kayla. Okay. The other four precepts, which are abstaining from taking what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from lying, and abstaining from consuming intoxicants, which is substances that cause heedlessness, are repeated with Buddha's guidance. There are amongst these five gifts, great gifts, highest of loving standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which are not being tainted, and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. All right. Thank you, Kayla. So here, this book that we're in is called The Natural Law of Gamma. And these chapters are all devoted to exposing you to teachings related to the natural law of Gamma. In reality, pretty much everything the Buddha taught is in one way or another related to the natural law of Gamma. This is the real focal point of what his teachings on the path to enlightenment are doing is helping you to gain the wisdom of this natural law of gamma. But in this particular book, there's some real targeted teachings that help us to understand various aspects of his teachings in more detail. Here, this particular teaching is helping to reflect on the five precepts, that when you understand the five precepts of killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, of lying and substances that cause heedlessness when you understand those in the words of the buddha he explained them in a lot of detail to help us understand all the various aspects of those five precepts but here what he's saying is he's essentially saying by you practicing the five precepts you are giving immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear hostility and harm because when we're not killing then other beings can be free of fear, hostility, and harm. When we're not lying, people don't have to be fearful or have hostility or harm because of our lying. When we have sexual misconduct, they can be free of fear, hostility, and harm. When we are have eliminated lying and speaking falsehoods through our own speech, again, people can be free of fear, hostility, and harm. And then likewise, when we don't take substances that cause heedlessness, beings can be free of fear, hostility, and harm because we're not causing harm through our conduct that is described in the five precepts. And the Buddha is saying that these are gifts. Each one of these are gifts. You can think of it as a wonderful gift that these immeasurable number of beings, countless beings, will be free from fear, hostility, and harm based on us improving our conduct. This is one of the reasons why in many of the classes I will end, I will say, you know, learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings is the best thing that you can do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. Because 
yes, learning and gaining this wisdom, you will experience enlightenment. You will experience as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And you won't be causing harm in the world when the mind is enlightened and you're making wise choices that lead to wholesome outcomes. And then the people around you, those that are closest to you, they will enjoy being with you even more than they already do because you're not causing harm through your bodily, verbal, or mental conduct. And then any beings that you interact with in the entire world won't be experiencing harm from you because you've purified the mind and you're no longer causing harm through your bodily, verbal, or mental conduct. And the Buddha is explaining that here about how practicing the five precepts, you're sharing this immeasurable amount of freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. And then he talks about, you know, this is a stream of merit. This is a stream of wholesomeness for us, this nutriment of peacefulness. What this means is the nutriment is this is what contributes to peacefulness, right? Like if you were going to grow a plant, they need nutrients in the soil. And the more nutrient rich that the soil is, the plant can grow and produce better fruit. So practicing good, wholesome moral conduct is a nutriment to peacefulness that you need to be practicing good, wholesome conduct in order for your own mind to be peaceful. Because if you're causing harm in the world, you're not going to be able to reside in peacefulness because your mind is going to be conflicted because you know you're causing harm in the world. You're causing harm to other beings through your bodily actions, your verbal actions, and your mental actions. Therefore, your mind is going to be what the Buddha called muddled or lacking concentration, you're going to experience discontentedness as a result. So in order to get to peacefulness, it's wholesome conduct and these wise decisions that we make about our conduct, which is the nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly, ripening in peacefulness, conducive to heaven. So beings who are practicing this way, not only are you more likely to experience enlightenment, but also should you fall short of that, What the Buddha is saying is this conduct of practicing the five precepts is conducive to being reborn in heaven, even though that isn't the goal. That's not the goal of this path. But should you fall short, it would be nice to know that you're going to be in that realm for a period of time where you can continue to work on progressing to enlightenment and potentially attaining enlightenment from within that realm. And then he talks about how this leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. What he's describing here is like the basic necessities that we need in our life in order to sustain our life. That if we're out in the world causing harm to other beings, we're going to find it very difficult to have the needed resources to sustain our life. These basic resources that we need for food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But when we're improving our conduct and we're no longer doing the things that are described in the five precepts, then we're not causing harm to others. So they feel more comfortable to engage us in work projects or beneficial projects that we can then acquire certain needs that we have in terms of sustaining our life. And then the Buddha just sums this up by saying, you know, these are five great gifts, highest gifts, longstanding. And he says, traditional, ancient, untainted, meaning unpolluted, right? That these teachings, these five precepts, this conduct, if you're practicing this way, it's untainted. It's never before tainted. And then 
he last thing he says here is he talks about this not being refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmin. Because remember, during the Buddha's lifetime, there were multiple people who were kind of practicing and trying to uh, practice certain teachings, not necessarily his, but maybe some others as well. And there were these Brahmin priests who were sharing teachings to help people live a better life, but it wasn't quite what the Buddha was sharing that leads to enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying, you know, if there's people who are wise and who understand this path to enlightenment, they would not refute or refuse that these five precepts are really wise and really beneficial for your life. This is why you see the teachings of the five precepts show up in other parts of other traditions. You might have studied Hinduism or Christianity or Judaism or other things like this, uh, Muslim teachings. You'll see these same aspects of teachings in terms of the five precepts in a lot of different traditions. Because remember, what the Buddha is describing is the natural laws of existence, these natural laws that exist in the world. He described them in the way that he described them. But then there was other people who also kind of awakened to a certain degree and explained them in their own language, and in their own words, where Jesus talked about the seven deadly sins. Some of those aspects of Jesus Christ's teachings are actually describing these five precepts that the Buddha taught. So the Buddha is saying, you know, wise aesthetics, wise Brahmin, people who are interested in improving their life would admit that, yes, these five precepts are very helpful and conducive to one's life and they're beneficial for us to learn and practice. And you can see the truth for yourself that as you learn and practice these five precepts, that it cleans up a good amount of your conduct so that you're not causing harm in the world. So you're significantly reducing the unwholesome effects of your unwholesome decisions because you've cleaned up a certain amount of your ignorance or your unknowing of true reality. And now by you practicing these five precepts, you're significantly reducing the harm you're causing in the world. So you're significantly reducing the harm that's coming back to you. And then of course, the rest of the path to enlightenment details a lot more aspects of this path that one we need to learn and practice in order to ultimately get to enlightenment. And that's what the whole rest of the path is all about. Any questions on this chapter? No question, there's something short. Let's go to Miranda for the next chapter. All right, chapter 32. Yes. One is reborn through one's deeds. Monks, beings are the owners of their karma, the heirs of their karma. They have karma as their origin, karma as their relative, karma as their resort. Whatever comma they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. Here, having abandoned the destruction of life, someone abstains from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, dedicated and kindly, he resides compassionate towards all living beings. He does not creep along by body, speech, and mind. His bodily comma is straight. His verbal comma is straight. His mental comma is straight. His destination is straight. His rebirth is straight. But for one with a straight destination and rebirth, I say, there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively pleasant heavens or influential families, such as those of affluent Katyas, affluent Brahmins or affluent householders, families that are rich, with great, great wealth and property, abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and belongings, abundant wealth and grain. 
Thus a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way, I say, that beings are the heirs of their karma. The Tathagata spoke of abandoning the taking what is not given and abandoning of sexual misconduct with discourse similar to that of abandoning of taking life. He also spoke of the fourfold wholesome conduct of speech and the threefold wholesome conduct of mind in the same way. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is connecting now the creation of gamma, either wholesome or unwholesome, to rebirth. And when we're learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, whether it's the five precepts, whether it's any aspect of the Eightfold Path, we're learning the wisdom that leads to improved results in this life. But also, should we fall short of enlightenment and there is rebirth, then there, the decisions that we make in this life are going to affect us in terms of where we're reborn in our next life, in terms of what realm and in the condition of the being that ends up being reborn in that realm. So the first part of this teaching, the Buddha is just making it clear that we are the owners of our gamma. Anything that we experience in this life is a result of our own decisions. Other people can't create gamma for us. It's our own decisions that produces certain results. We might choose to be friends with somebody who then as a result of our association to that person, then they do some harmful things that affect us. That's possible, but it's all as a result of our decisions because we're choosing to associate with someone who maybe that we know is doing unwholesome things. So it's always a result of our decisions. What we tend to be interested to do in the unenlightened mind is we blame other people for the things that happen in our life. And what the Buddha is explaining throughout all of his teachings and including here is everything that we experience is a result of our own decisions. And in order to make good, wise, wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome results, we need to have wisdom. And it's the Buddhist teachings that are giving us that wisdom. Whereas if we thought or we believed that things that we were experiencing in this life are as a result of anyone else's decisions, then you're powerless. You have no ability to improve your life because everything that's happening to you or even a portion of the things that are happening to you is as a result of other people's decisions. So that means you would never be able to get to any kind of beneficial life because your mind believes that what you're experiencing in this life is a result of other people's decisions. But if you come to understand and you can independently verify and see that every single thing that you experience in this life is a result of your decisions, then you can now be empowered and you can learn and you can make wiser decisions to produce more wholesome outcomes. So that's what the Buddha is saying here is that anything we experience, wholesome or unwholesome, it's a result of our own decisions. And we're unable to run or hide from that those decisions. If we make wholesome or unwholesome decisions in this life, we will experience the results of those decisions either in this life or in some future life or in some subsequent occasion. The Buddha explained this in prior chapters, that the results of gamma are to be experienced in this life, the next life, or some subsequent occasion, which is some future rebirth. So with this wisdom and with this knowledge, if you independently verify this for yourself, 
what you come to understand is that it's highly unwise to do anything unwholesome because you're going to have to deal with the results of those decisions. So someone coming to the conclusion and the understanding that it's our own decisions that are producing certain results, this cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions, then the next thing is, is okay, if that's the situation, if that's the way this natural law works, then I'm going to make the decision to gain as much wisdom as I can so that I can now make wiser decisions. It's the same thing as once you discovered, independently verified that the natural law of gravity is the truth, then the next decision was, well, let me learn some wisdom of how to balance and how to walk properly so that I don't keep falling down, right? This is what you decided when you were growing up. Or once you independently saw that this natural law of gravity, that when you knock something off of a table, it falls down and breaks, If you have something that you're no longer interested in breaking, you put it in a safe place so that it no longer is possible to fall down and break because of gravity, right? So when you come to understand these natural laws and you have the wisdom of these natural laws, now you can start making wiser decisions as a result. So if you understand that the natural law of gamma is that this cause and effect, this action and result, the results of our decisions, and we are the only ones that can create certain results in our life, then the next decision is, okay, well, let me learn as much about this natural law as possible so that I can make wiser and wiser decisions leading to more and more wholesome outcomes. So that's the first part there. And then he just connects this to the three right actions of the Eightfold Path. So in the Eightfold Path, he talks about as right action of not destroying life, of not stealing, and there's other teachings there as part of that precept, and then not having sexual misconduct. And of course, we understand right action is not causing any harm through our bodily actions, but in the Eightfold Path, he just covers those three as kind of a way to kind of bring you into understanding and learning about right action so that you can understand to not cause harm through your bodily actions, which would produce unwholesome results through the body. And then, of course, he goes on and talks about verbal as well, which is part of right speech. And then he talks about mental, which is part of right intention. And when he's what he's saying here is that when our bodily gamma, when the results of our decisions is straight, when the results of our verbal conduct is straight, when the results of our mental conduct is straight, then our rebirth is straight, meaning that we're either going to be reborn in the heavenly realm, which is where they experience exclusively pleasant feelings, or we're going to be reborn in the human realm within influential families, which would be in during the Buddhist time, affluent katyas, which are people that were really prosperous during the lifetime of the Buddha, affluent Brahmin, which were the Brahmin priests, or affluent householders, householders, people that are living a household life. And then he explains that someone who improves their bodily conduct, not only are they going to be reborn in these better destinations, but when they arrive in those destinations, they will have wealth, uh, richness, wealth and property, abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and belongings, abundant wealth and grain. Again, the goal is not to acquire wealth. That's not the goal of this life. 
But for somebody who does have more wealth, you have the basic necessities covered in your life. Now you can focus on learning and practicing the teachings in order to get to enlightenment. But someone who's living from meal to meal and doesn't really know where their next meal is coming from, it's very difficult for them to crack open a book and spend three, four, five hours reading a book that is going to improve their life with some teachings of the Buddha or even do something as simple as meditate because they're so busy with you know, just trying to acquire the basic necessities in life, where their next meal is coming from, they don't have the opportunity to learn and practice. So if somebody is learning and practicing like all of you to progress in your wisdom and develop better moral conduct, should you fall short of enlightenment, you will potentially be reborn into one of these existences, either in the heavenly realm or the human realm. And now there's the ability for you to have more prosperity so that now you won't find it as difficult and as much of a struggle to sustain your life that will all be taken care of so that in this future life you'll be able to then practice to actually attain enlightenment potentially in that future life so the buddha is explaining that that's the case that that these are the results of our decisions and here he says thus a being is reborn from a being so one being is reborn as another being one is reborn through one's deeds so it's our actions that determine how we're reborn right it's craving desire attachment that determines if there's rebirth but it's the decisions that we make in terms of our bodily verbal and mental conduct our deeds that determines in which realm and in which condition that that being experiences in that realm. So that's what he's explaining here. And then he says, when one has been reborn, contact affects one. So if you remember, he talks about contact being the condition that's needed in order for there to be gamma generated. If you aren't having contact with other beings, you're not going to be able to create gamma. So He says this in a couple of chapters that we're going to be discussing today, that it's contact that is the condition that needs to exist in order for gamma to be created. So once there's contact, then we can actually have gamma created, either wholesome or unwholesome. And then there's new and old gamma. In this way, I say that beings are the heirs of their gamma, meaning everything that you do, wholesome or unwholesome, based on contact with other beings, it's going to produce either wholesome, unwholesome gamma. And we should be aware of that. And this is one of the reasons why it's important to slow the mind down when you're coming in contact with others and potentially even function that way, even when you're not around others, is through meditation and through your daily practice, wherever you see the mind lurching forward and it's unrestrained, You need to restrain the mind and you need to pull it back and practice in a way where you can slowly but surely make wise decisions so that when you're coming in contact with other beings, you're not producing unwholesome decisions that would lead to unwholesome results. So everything that you experience, every decision that you make is going to lead to some experience, some outcome. And it's this wisdom that will help you to know how to make wise decisions to lead to wholesome outcomes. Questions on this chapter? No question, the same teacher. All right. Chapter 33. 
Well, one is reborn through one's creeping deeds. Monks, I will teach you a discourse of the teachings on creeping. Listen and attend closely. And what monks is the discourse of the teachings on creeping? Monks, beings are the owners of their karma, the ears of their karma. They have karma as their origin, karma as their relative, karma as their resort. Whatever karma they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its ears. Here someone destroys life. He is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. He creeps along by, by body, speech, and mind. His bodily karma is crooked. His verbal karma is crooked. His mental karma is crooked. His destination is crooked. His rebirth is crooked. But for one with a crooked destination and rebirth, I say there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively painful hills or a species of creeping animal. And what are the species of creeping animals? The snake, the scorpion, the centipede, the mongoose, the cat, the mouse, and the owl or any other animals that creep away when they see people. Thus, a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way I say that beings are the ears of their karma. The Tathagata spoke of taking what is not given and engaged in sexual misconduct with discourses similar to that of taking life. He also spoke of the fourfold misconduct of speech and the threefold misconduct of mind in the same way. All right. Thank you, Bassam. This chapter is in direct contrast to the one that we read previously. The one that we read previously was talking about the wholesomeness of practicing these three aspects of the five precepts and that are found as part of right action in the Eightfold Path. And then, he, of course, he also expands on that and talks about speech and mind as well. In the previous chapter, he was talking about a straight rebirth and that by practicing these things, it leads to an improved rebirth. Here, he's talking about if someone doesn't practice these aspects of life and makes unwholesome decisions in not practicing this conduct then they have this crooked rebirth rather than a straight rebirth it's crooked meaning you know moving from side to side or up and down you know it's not straight it's not clean it's not pure so this crooked rebirth he's saying leads to one of two destinations either in hell or in the animal realm and here you can see where he talks about hell having exclusively painful feelings this is something that i've talked about in other classes, how the heavenly realm has exclusively pleasant feelings and the hell realm has exclusively painful feelings. There is no pleasant feelings in the hell realm. In the animal realm, there are pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. They still experience all three types of discontentedness, but animals are unable to cultivate the consciousness in order to evolve to enlightenment. They can eventually move out of the animal realm into a better rebirth, but being in hell in the animal realm is like one of the worst things that can happen because it's like being trapped in a prison. Because once you're in the animal realm, you typically have to kill. 
you typically are stealing food and things from other beings and you typically are having sexual misconduct so it's very difficult once you get in there to move out but of course beings are able to do that all of us have been reborn in at least the animal realm countless times but ultimately we found our way and we made our way out of that realm and into this human realm and now that we're here it's very wise for us to learn and practice so that we can experience the results of our decisions which would be a more peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy which is the enlightened mental state and here he's saying that you know for someone who's creeping he uses this word creeping creeping is like kind of like being very sneaky being backhanded being corrupt if you have these aspects of where you're practicing in this way he's saying not only are you going to potentially be reborn in the realm of hell and or the animal realm but once you're in the animal realm he even gives exact types of animals that one would actually be reborn as because of the creeping because of the mind functioning very much like an animal in this human realm creeping around doing backhanded things being corrupt being malicious in our intentions you know being scared and fearful running away from things because the human mind is functioning that way when somebody is reborn they're reborn as these creepy animals creeping animals because the mind is already functioning that way so he gives examples of those here questions on anything on this chapter yes teacher it seems that there are people who are seeking to a uh, go to maybe teachers to help them remember their previous lives do you see any benefit from doing this i don't suggest somebody spends a lot of time trying to figure out their past lives because that's not what the goal of this path is if there's craving desire attachment to you know this longing this wanting to know the past then the mind isn't in the present moment and if it's not in the present moment it can't be peaceful calm serene and content with joy because it's still longing for something in the past and oftentimes people who really want to know their past lives can oftentimes be misled to think that they have been certain beings in the past when they really haven't it's just been kind of a suggestion that's been inserted into the mind if somebody's really interested in experiencing enlightenment the best thing to do is focus on the here and now to learn reflect and practice the teachings and if the mind is going to remember past lives as you gradually work towards awakening the mind with the core path and the core teachings then you will actually remember your past lives and that's actually a better way for it to happen because if you're kind of trying to force it to happen then in my view it's kind of tainted because if there's craving there to understand the past lives then that craving can oftentimes taint what you're actually experiencing and you might come out of those experiences uh, thinking that you were this being or that being or this being or that being in reality it's just a figment of your imagination it's a manifestation of your own ego that you're craving to know the past you're looking for it so deeply that then you just kind of accept or your ego takes over and kind of takes on an understanding of i was a lion in the past or i was a gorilla or i was a king or i was a a movie star i was a celebrity or what have you and you know this is where you know the mind just gets further diluted so if you stay focused on the here and now the present moment on the core path 
if your mind's going to observe past lives, it will happen naturally by itself. And then you'll just know that that's a more honest, truthful understanding of what your past lives were because the mind just kind of walked into it without even attempting to figure it out, without longing for it. It just started gradually happening and occurring for you. So therefore, the memories are natural memories, these residual memories coming back into the mind rather than something that's being forced or controlled and kind of tainted with your own craving. Thanks, teacher. All right, so next chapter. Yes. Chapter 34. At minimum, leads to deeds. Monks, the destruction of life repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, the destruction of life at minimum leads to a short lifespan. Taking what is not given, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, taking what is not given at minimum leads to loss of wealth. Sexual misconduct repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, a be uh, sexual misconduct at minimum leads to hostility and competition. False speech repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, false speech at minimum leads to false accusations. Argumentative speech repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, argumentative speech, at minimum, leads to being separated from one's friends. Harsh speech, repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, harsh speech, at minimum, leads to disagreeable sounds. Idle chatter, repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, idle chatter, at minimum, leads to other distrusting one's words. Drinking liquor and wine, ingestion of substances that cause headlessness, repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, drinking liquor and wine, ingestion of substances that cause headlessness, at minimum, leads to madness. All right. Thank you, Bossum. This is a great chapter for you to understand learning, reflecting, and practicing. This is the process that the mind needs to go through in order to actually bring the teachings into the mind and actually practice in order to experience the results. You need to first learn the teachings that the Buddha is sharing with you. Don't believe them, just learn them in order to understand them. Then you reflect on them and you start thinking about the teachings and kind of looking out at your life and the life of people in the world and see if this is really true or not. This is where you're looking to kind of independently verify the teachings to a certain degree. And then you start practicing that teaching with confidence and you can then start seeing how it improves 
and benefits your life. So here in this particular chapter, rather than believe what the Buddha is saying, we actually learn it. So what he's saying here is he's saying we shouldn't destroy life, that we shouldn't take what is not given, that we shouldn't have sexual misconduct, we shouldn't have false speech, we shouldn't have argumentative speech, we shouldn't have harsh speech, we shouldn't have idle chatter, and we shouldn't take substances that cause heedlessness. And he says the reason why is if we do these things, then it's going to lead to these results. If we kill, then it's going to lead to a shorter lifespan. If we steal, then it's going to lead to a loss of wealth in our life. If we have sexual misconduct, it's going to lead to hostility and competition. If we have false speech, it's going to lead to false accusations. If we have argumentative speech, then it's going to lead to being separated from one's friends. If we have harsh speech, it's going to lead to disagreeable sounds, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then idle chatter leads to others distrusting one's words. And then if we have substances that cause heedlessness, it leads to madness, to our own madness. So rather than believe any of this, what we do is we learn it. We're like, okay, thank you, Mr. Gautama Buddha, for sharing this wisdom with us 2,500 years ago. Outstanding. It's wonderful that these teachings have been shared. They've been learned and practiced for 2,500 years. They've been shared for over 2,500 years. And here we are reading these teachings, which we think are the words of the Buddha, but we don't want to believe that. Instead, we look at these words and we learn them and we understand them. Now we start reflecting. Okay, people who destroy life repeatedly pursuing the destruction of life, do they have a shorter lifespan? So we start thinking about people who either in our life or in history and the news and things like this, people who regularly kill, does it lead to a shorter lifespan? In other words, does it lead to their own death shorter than normal? So we can look at things like world leaders over the past who have had a lot of eagerness to destroy life and to kill other beings. Did it lead to wholesome results where they had a long lifespan? Or you can look at people who are in the military going off into war. Do they tend to live long lives, right? And we're not saying that these people are necessarily wholesome or unwholesome or good or bad. We're just looking at the natural law of gamma and trying to reflect on this to determine if what the Buddha is saying is true. If someone went off into war as a 20-year-old or 18-year-old or 25 years old or what have you, and they go out and they're killing, 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 killing in war, very often they get killed themselves, which leads to a shorter lifespan. You can look at people like Adolf Hitler, who existed over 80 years ago, and he did a lot of killing based on his leadership and what was going on at the time of his life. Did it lead to him having a long lifespan? Well, he ended up killing himself, apparently, committing suicide, and he died fairly young. You know, not super young, like a 20 or 25-year-old, but had he not made those decisions to kill massive numbers of people, he would have lived a longer life if he was making wiser decisions in this regard. So you can look at people not just that are murderous, maybe, and that go to jail and actually get the death penalty or people end up killing them once they're in jail. Not just those people, 
But remember, this natural law of gamma functions regardless of what human beings say or do. So if a government sends a soldier out into the field to kill other beings and they're giving them the permission to do that, where at home they wouldn't be able to go out into a city and kill people, but the government's giving them permission to go to another territory and kill those people. Well, they're not going to get prosecuted for murder when they come back home to their homeland because of human laws. Human laws are not applied consistently, equitably, and fairly across all beings. But the natural law of gamma surely is applied equally among all beings. If we choose to destroy life, it doesn't matter whether our government has given us the okay or the authority to do that or not. If we're out in another country choosing to kill others, or if we're even in our own country choosing to kill others, then it's going to lead to this shorter lifespan, regardless of what our government says, because the natural law of gamma doesn't function based on human interaction. Humans aren't overseeing this law. It's all happening as a result of our own decisions. So this is a key aspect of the natural law of gamma that you can start to understand the learning, the reflection, and the practice. So now that you've learned this from the Buddha, now that you've reflected on it and decided like, yeah, you know, the Buddha is speaking some truth here. I can see how people who kill frequently end up dying and having a shorter lifespan than normal. That's my reflection. Now let me move this into practice and stop killing living beings, whether it's human beings, whether it's animals, whether it's insects, no matter what it is, let me stop destroying life because I see the truth here that I independently verified this teaching of the Buddhas and I can see that it's the truth through my learning and reflection. But now let me practice it and see how that goes for me. And the same thing with all of these others, the stealing. If you've ever stolen in the past or you know other people that have stolen, then you can look around and you can kind of see the evidence for yourself that oftentimes people who steal, they lose wealth. You know, they get in trouble with the legal system. They have to pay lawyers. They have to do all kinds of other things in order to pay money. Or because they are stealing, they don't know how to acquire money. So they're lacking the insight and the wisdom of how to acquire money through wholesome means and wholesome decisions. So they're resorting to stealing and they're stealing and stealing and stealing. And they have no ability to actually acquire wealth because they don't have the wisdom of how to do that. Right. And you can look at people in the world who repeatedly steal and they're not going to be wealthy. Right. And then you can look at each one of these sexual misconduct. If you understand what sexual misconduct is, the way that the Buddha taught that in terms of the five precepts, you can look at that and say, does it lead to hostility and competition? Right. And maybe if you've actually had sexual misconduct in the past, you might look at your own life and see if you had these problems of hostility and competition. And then each one of these, rather than go through each one of them individually, I'll take questions on whichever ones you have questions on, but you can see how if you practice something like false speech where you're going around lying about things, you're lying constantly, then you're going to experience other people making false accusations about you as well, because what you're putting out is coming back to you. And if you've experienced that where at one time in your life, you did a lot of lying, you might've observed that a lot of people were lying about you. Or if you have 
people around you, friends and family who do a lot of lying. You can look at their life and look at the people around them and you'll see that there's a lot of people lying about them as well because that's the choices that they're making is they're choosing to have false speech. So therefore, these false accusations are coming back to them. And just lastly, I'll just mention this last one unless you guys have questions about the others is when we argue. This is a really big one. Because of craving, anger, and ignorance, oftentimes the unenlightened mind wants to argue because the mind is craving permanence. It wants permanence. It wants everyone to agree or it wants certain things. And then there's this anger and this hatred, this ill will, this hostility and aggression that arises in the mind. And now we start arguing. We start being harsh and vindictive with our speech. And what does that lead to? The Buddha is saying that leads to separation from one's friends. So if you've ever had an experience where you've argued with people, did it bring you closer to that person? Did you end up having a closer relationship with that person? Or did it end up damaging the relationship and you guys ended up leaving from each other? So this is where you learn what the Buddha is sharing, but then you don't believe it. You independently verify it. You start reflecting on it based on your own life and the life of people around you and things that you've observed in the world. Then when you see that, wow, this is looking like the truth. This looks like it's real wisdom here that the Buddha is sharing with us. Let me start practicing that. Let me stop arguing with people. Let me stop being vindictive. Let me stop trying to get the last word in whenever somebody says something and I disagree with it. Let me stop just trying to get the last word in because of my arrogance and ego. If somebody says something I disagree with, let me just train the mind to be peaceful and content and allow that to just happen. And okay, I disagree with them, but I don't have to argue back with them and prove to them that I feel that I'm right and that I've feel that they're wrong. There's no need for you to do that because it's only going to lead to separation between you and your friends. So purging this conduct of argumentative speech will then cultivate more harmonious relationships in your life. So you can look at all of these and do the same exact process. You can learn, then don't believe it. You can reflect on it to kind of independently verify it a bit through your reflection, and then you can practice it and then independently verify it even more deeply. Because when you purge something like argumentative speech and you see your relationships blossom, both personally and professionally, then you'll know the truth that for sure argumentative speech is not wise whatsoever. And the Buddha was indeed a very wise, enlightened being. He was surely the perfectly enlightened one because I've learned what he had to say. I reflect on it, saw the truth, then I practiced it, and then I really saw the truth, that it improved the condition of my mind and it improved the condition of my life in terms of my relationships with others. This is how you gradually do this with each individual aspect of the Buddhist teachings. And you don't need to believe his teachings, but you learn, reflect, and practice, independently verifying them all the way through, which leads to wisdom. And then that wisdom antidotes and transforms the ignorance and now you're making wiser and wiser choices in your life what questions do you guys have on this chapter well on youtube i have a question from Locke. are all mind or mood altering substances considered to cause headlessness i'm abstinent myself but i have some interest in psychoactive plants 
Could you shed some light on this issue? Thank you, David. Yes, you're welcome. Great question. This is one that comes up occasionally. Yes, all substances that are causing any kind of heedlessness. What heedlessness is, is uncalm, unaware, unalert, unmindful, or unawareness. So psychoactive substances, even natural substances like mushrooms and plant material that is producing that heedlessness in the mind, it's going to take you away from being able to observe the natural aspects of the mind, the natural qualities of the mind. And when the mind is heedless, this is when you have a tendency to kill, to steal, to have sexual misconduct, to lie, and have other conduct that is going to cause harm in your life and the life of other people. So even something as small as caffeine causes heedlessness. So definitely psychoactive substances, but you need to also work towards purging things like caffeine. If you really would like to get to the point where you can see the pure mind is eliminating caffeine and even excessive amounts of sugar can even cause heedlessness as well. These are not things that we typically think of. And this is why it's important to look at the Buddhist teachings in his own words. While right here, he says drinking liquor and wine, because that's essentially what existed during his lifetime was liquor and wine, right? He had no idea that PCP and LSD and all these other things, he didn't know that these things were going to necessarily come into the world, but he understood the universal truth of impermanence. So while right here, he's using the words drinking liquor and wine, when you look at the fifth precept, In the words of the Buddha, he uses this word heedlessness. He says, any substance that is the basis of heedlessness, because he understood that the substances that existed during his lifetime of liquor and wine, as time went forward, these substances were going to change. So while he didn't know about PCP or LSD exactly, because those are chemicals that didn't exist during his lifetime, he knew enough to speak in a way that his words are timeless and that they would apply for all time. So here he says drinking liquor and wine, but I've inserted into the translation this ingesting substances that cause heedlessness to remind students of the Buddha's words in the five precepts. Because if you look at the Buddha's words in the five precepts, you will see that he uses this word heedlessness and he talks about it in that way because there in the five precepts, He's laying down these timeless teachings that can be applied for all time, regardless of what substances existed during his lifetime and what substances are going to come afterwards. Because he knew that not all beings were going to attain enlightenment during his lifetime, and he needed to speak in such a way that his teachings would apply over a timeless period. And this is how a Buddha understands and functions and teaches in such a way that their words and their teachings can be applied over an indefinite period of time because they know that during their lifetime, not all beings are going to attain enlightenment, but they need to leave behind the teachings that will lead to enlightenment for countless beings after their lifetime. So this is why when you understand what the word heedlessness means, which is uncalm, unattentive, unalert, and unmindful, then now when you understand that's what the precept is really getting to, it doesn't matter what substances exist today, what substances existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, or what substances might exist long into the future. 
because things are going to change. And if you understand that your goal is to purify this mind so that you can have awareness of the mind and you can make wise decisions, anytime we take any substance whatsoever, including something like caffeine or excessive sugar, it's going to produce heedlessness in the mind and inhibit us from making wise decisions on this path to enlightenment. So thinking of heedlessness will allow us to now apply this long, 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 long into the future. On Zoom, I mean, all right, sir, a question about argumentative speech. At times when my daughter wishes to argue a point and to show her independence, the mind does not always let it go right away. The best practice is to let it go or share with her the teachings about argumentative speech. The best thing to do is in the moment when your daughter is trying to argue with you, is don't argue and just turn off the conversation and kind of walk in the opposite direction or just change the topic to something else. Because what happens is the unenlightened mind has this certain pathway. It's practicing this argumentative speech because that's what comes natural to it. With craving anger and ignorance, the mind has this well-worn path that it feels comfortable arguing and it doesn't see any problems with that. But as long as you allow that path to remain open, your daughter is going to keep walking down that path of argumentative speech. So what you would like to do is help her cut that off by changing the subject or, you know, just walking away from the conversation or otherwise, you know, just leaving the conversation. And then later on, if she would like to discuss it, now you open up this new pathway which is a bit of a struggle. It's a bit more difficult. It's like forging this new path in the forest. There's all these vines, there's all these trees, there's all these branches, but you've got to come through there with a machete and you've got to create this new pathway where now we can have a discussion. We can have a calm discussion where with loving kindness and compassion, we can sit, we can talk, we can practice the five factors of well-spoken speech, speaking at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gentle, we speak beneficially, and with a mind of loving kindness. And now she gets used to speaking this way with you, that when she's arguing, you don't talk, you don't have conversation with her because you're not interested in her continuing to walk down that path and continuing to wear that path more and more. What you would like her to do is forge this new direction where it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be difficult for her and you because you're not used to it. But once you walk down this path of discussions, calm discussions, where you're using the five factors of well-spoken speech, now this path gets worn and you get more used to walking down this path. And now it feels more comfortable to do that because it produces better results. In this old path of argumentative speech, the vines get overgrown and now you don't walk down that path anymore. And she doesn't walk down that path anymore. So as long as there's argumentative speech going on, you're not interested. You're not interested in any kind of discussion whatsoever that would involve argumentative speech, whether it's with your daughter or anyone else. You're interested in encouraging her and supporting her to now have these wholesome discussions using the five factors of well-spoken speech. So while she's actually arguing, it's usually not the best time to be teaching her the five factors of well-spoken speech because the mind has a risen craving and maybe some anger in there. And that's not when the mind is most conducive to learning. So usually in the moment, the best thing to do is just shut it down by walking away 
or changing the subject or doing something else. And then later, a few hours, a few days, a, a week or so, circle back and have some conversation about what right speech is and the five factors of well-spoken speech and let her know that you're interested in having conversations with her in this way. And let her know that you haven't necessarily been the best at doing that in the past and you're working on that. And together, you guys would like to work on that and start having more and more discussions rather than any kind of arguments whatsoever. And you can even let her know that you love her immensely, but as long as she's arguing, you're not going to engage in that conversation and you're going to end up choosing to walk away. And this is where your own mind's restraint is really important. As long as you have craving, anger, and ignorance, it's going to be very hard for you to restrain your mind in those situations where someone is arguing. So now with this wisdom that the Buddha is sharing, you start you know, continuing to practice where you're eliminating your craving, where you're eliminating your anger, and you are eliminating ignorance, of course, through learning these teachings. And the more that you bring all of these things down and, and reduce them, it'll get easier and easier for you to practice something like right speech using the five factors of well-spoken speech. But you're interested in creating this new pathway, and that's why it's a struggle. And that's why this path is sometimes quite challenging, or some people might even call it difficult. But the Buddha says, don't shrink back from the struggle. So while it's really challenging to restrain our mind and not argue, while it's really challenging, it's a real struggle and maybe even difficult to practice the five factors of well-spoken speech in each conversation. Each time we make attempts at it, each time we work towards it, we get better and better and we wear this path. We create this new pathway to conducting ourselves in more wholesome ways. And then it just becomes effortless that you're doing it all the time and you've got this well-worn path where you're only having wholesome discussions with every single person in your life. There's no arguing whatsoever. Let's go to Miranda. Um, yes, sir. Going back a little bit to substances that cause heedlessness. I know that some of us that are on this path, including myself, we switched to the caffeinated coffee. And it was just brought to my attention recently that even decaffeinated coffee has a bit of caffeine in it. So is it a better decision to just even cut out decaffeinated coffee because of that little bit of caffeine? Or is that minuscule enough that it really isn't causing heedlessness? If I were you, I would purge all substances, eliminate everything. And this is where our wisdom comes in, that, you know, what other people are choosing to market doesn't mean that they're practicing these teachings of having speech and communication that's true. Someone might be labeling something as decaf, but what you find out is it actually has caffeine in it because of somebody's own lack of practice, their own lack of wisdom. They're not practicing in such a way that they're labeling their products in a wholesome way. So when you investigate and you look into these things and you see that a certain product has caffeine in it, if I was you, I would completely eliminate it because any kind of caffeine, even the most minuscule, it's going to produce heedlessness in the mind. The more pure that your mind becomes in terms of your meditation and purifying the mind of these three poisons, you'll be affected by things uh, really closely. 
Uh, I was at a restaurant recently and we were interested in ordering something and it was a, a root beer and we weren't sure whether this root beer had caffeine or not. And somebody at the table ordered it and while it was being ordered, you know, we Googled it and we realized that it didn't have caffeine in it. And we we're like, oh, great. You know, this root beer doesn't have caffeine. So it's something that we'll be able to drink and not experience any heedlessness. But also as you become more and more pure and the mind's more and more pure, it's like you can even happen to drink something. Maybe you think it doesn't have caffeine in it. You can happen to drink something and it can cause heedlessness. If you're really aware of the mind and you're aware of the quality of the mind being stable and calm and steady, and you just drink the slightest little bit of caffeine, you can observe the uptick in the mind in terms of the overactivity. And you might even observe headaches. And this is where the mind becomes very sensitive. It's kind of like if you've ever drank alcohol. Prior to you ever drinking alcohol when you were a young kid, the first time you drank alcohol, like one beer or two beers would probably make you loopy because your tolerance was very low. But then the more you drank, your tolerance built up and you had to drink more in order to experience the same results. Well, as you're purifying the mind, it has the same effect that as your mind becomes more and more pure, even the slightest little amount of something like a small amount of caffeine will produce significant results in the mind. So I would suggest purging everything and anything so that you can see the natural state of the mind. And this will allow you to now refine the mind and bring it into the middle more and more. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So now we move into chapter 35. Yes, and Miranda is the next volunteer. Let's go to her. Indebtedness is discontentedness in the world. Poverty is called discontentedness in the world. So too is getting into debt. A poor person who becomes indebted is troubled while enjoying himself. Then they prosecute him and he also incurs imprisonment. This imprisonment is indeed discontentedness for one yearning for gain and sensual pleasures. Just so in a noble one's discipline, one in whom confidence is lacking, who sees no danger in wrongdoing and brash, keeps up a mass of evil, unwholesome calm. Having engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind, he forms the wish, may no one find out about me. He twists around with his body, twists around by speech or mind. He piles up his wholesome, evil, unwholesome deeds in one way or another repeatedly. This unwise evildoer, knowing his own misdeeds, is a poor person who falls into debt, troubled while enjoying himself. His thoughts then prosecute him. Painful mental states born of remorse follow him wherever he goes, whether in the village or the forest. This unwise evildoer, knowing his own misdeeds, goes to a certain animal realm or is even bound in hell. This indeed is the discontentedness of bondage. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is connecting being in debt to discontentedness, because if you've ever been in debt, especially significant debt, then you felt the pressure and you had the certain worries or the Buddhist talking about, you know, being troubled by this debt and this indebtedness. All too often in today's society, we may be convinced to take on debt and as if that's a beneficial thing. 
But when you have debt, that means you're stuck. That means that you have this pressure on you. And what the Buddha is sharing here is that by getting into debt, essentially what it is, is you have certain craving, desire, attachments of things that you want, but yet you can't afford it. So you take on debt in order to enjoy something that the mind's chasing after, something that it perceives pleasurable. And then when you have difficulties paying that back, this is the prison that one keeps themselves into. So the Buddha is saying, you know, while you're essentially enjoying these central pleasures, you're experiencing discontentedness. Where is it here? Here it is. A poor person who becomes indebted is troubled while enjoying himself. So while there's craving, desire, attachment there, and the person is longing with a strong eagerness to have certain things, and we create these debts by borrowing money or having credit cards or what have you, and we stack up all this debt, we're over here enjoying ourselves with all these central pleasures and all these things that we've acquired. And we're going to be very troubled because there's still this debt. And then the debt isn't just what we owe, it's what we owe plus interest. So the Buddha is encouraging us here to be able to see that so that we know that we can live within our means. If you have a big amount of debt now or even any amount of debt, it's really wise to work towards eliminating your debts. Uh, whether it's car payments, whether it's money you owe individual people, uh, whether it's loans or credit cards, as long as you have that on your back and on your shoulders, the mind can experience this troublesome, this worry. And when you're able to pay off your debts and get free from any debts, now you have more freedom. The mind can be liberated from this pressure. And then you can live within your means and you can just purchase the things that you need rather than pursuing your wants all the time. So it might take you kind of shrinking your lifestyle down and living very basic life so that you have this extra money to pay off your debts. But then once you get free of all your debts, now you can kind of open up a little bit and maybe start enjoying a few things here and there. You don't have to be devoid of all enjoyment. You can go on holidays. You can go on different excursions. You can purchase things that you need in life. Maybe you would like to have an iPad or maybe you would like to have a PlayStation. Like my son really wants a PlayStation, but we can't afford that. So he's not uh, getting one. And there's things like this that we might want that if that want, if that craving is in there, you might be motivated to go out and incur debt. But then you're just sitting there enjoying yourself while this debt and this pressure is racking up. So if you can kind of shrink your lifestyle down, live a very basic lifestyle, then apply any extra funds to paying off your debt. Then when you get free of that debt, then you can just kind of open things up a little bit. But you've actually learned a lot to restrain your craving during that time that you were paying off your debt. So now, even when you don't have a debt anymore, you might find that you live a fairly restrained lifestyle, just you know, spending money for your basic needs because it's very expensive to have craving, desire, attachment. If you've got a certain phone, a mobile phone or a certain computer, and you always want the latest, you always want the best, and every time a new phone comes out, you have to hurry up and buy it. This is very expensive, and it puts a lot of work on your shoulders that you have to work to keep up with purchasing all these new things. So it's something that you should keep in mind, something that you should look at, 
because someone who is doing this constantly and stacking up this debt, you're going to just kind of bury yourself in this hole that's very difficult to get out of. And the Buddha is explaining here that when you do this and you're living this kind of troubled life, that there's the potential that because the mind is the way that it is, that one is reborn into this lower realm of hell, right? This animal realm or this hell. Not because you're going into debt. It's because the mind's craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing the mind uh, all of its troubles and all of its worries. And that's what causes the rebirth in the lower realms is when there's extensive amounts of craving, desire, attachment, that being is going to go down to the lower realms. And then once you're there, it's very challenging to get back out. Uh, the Buddha describes it as a prison. So we should aspire to not experience that. And the way that you do that is learn, reflect, and practice. Train the mind, restrain it, eliminate this craving, anger, and ignorance. And then you can experience a peaceful life, the rest of this life, and no more rebirth. Questions on this chapter? No question, I understand, teacher. All right, so we'll move on to chapter 36. Four kinds of persons. At Savathi, the perfectly likened one, said to the king Pasindi of Kosala, Great king, there are these four kinds of persons found existing in the world. What for? The one heading, heading from darkness to darkness. The one heading from darkness to light. The one heading from light to darkness. The one heading from light to light. And how great king is a person, one heading from darkness to darkness. Here some person has been reborn in a low family, a family of candles, bamboo workers, hunters, cart rights, or waste collectors, a poor family in which there is little food and drink, and which subsides with difficulty, one where food and clothing are obtained with difficulty, and is unsightly, deformed, chronically blind or crippled, handed, or lame or paralyzed. He is not one who gains food, drink, clothing, and vehicles garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engages in misconduct of body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a plane of misery, in a bad destination, in the netherworld, in hell. Suppose, great, ma great king, a man would go from darkness to darkness, or from gloom to gloom, or from stain to stain, this person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that a person is one heading from darkness to darkness. And how great king is, person, is a person one heading from darkness to light. Here some person has been reborn in a low family, a family of candles, bamboo workers, hunters, cartwrights, or waste collectors, a family in which there is little food and drink, and which subsides with difficulty one where food and clothing are obtained with difficulty, and he is ugly, unsightly, deformed, chronically blind or cripple-handed, or lame or paralyzed. He is not one who gains food, drink, clothing, and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, housing, and lighting. 
He engaged in wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Suppose, great king, a man would climb from the ground on to a palanquin, or from palanquin on to horseback, or from horseback to an elephant mount, or from an elephant mount to a mansion. This person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that a person is one heading from darkness to light. And how great king is a person one heading from light to darkness. Here some person has been reborn in a high family, an affluent Kataya family, and an affluent Brahmin family, or an affluent householder family, one which is rich with great wealth and property, with abundant gold and silver, abundant treasure and commodities, abundant wealth and grain, and he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. He is one who gains food, drink, clothing, and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engaged in misconduct of body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a plane of misery, in a bad destination, in a nether world, in hell. Suppose great king, a man would descend from a mansion to an elephant mount, or from an elephant mount to horseback, or from horseback to palanquin, or from a palanquin to the ground, or from the ground to underground darkness. This person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that a person is one heading from light to darkness. And how great king is a person one heading from light to light? Here some person has been reborn in a high family, an affluent Kataya family, an affluent Brahmin family, or an affluent householder family, one which is rich with great wealth and property, with abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and commodities, with abundant wealth and grain, and he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. complexion. He is one who gains food, drink, clothing, and vehicles, scents, and ointments, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engages in wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. Having done so with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Suppose, great king, a man would cross over from palanquin to palanquin, or from house ho horseback to horseback, or from elephant mount to elephant mount, or from mansion to mansion. This person, I say, is exactly similar. It is in this way, great king, that a person is one heading from light to light. These great king are the four kinds of persons found existing in the world. Okay. Here, the Buddha is talking about these four types of people. And what he's describing is in terms of like our journey to enlightenment. Because remember, during the lifetime of the Buddha, what people believed was that based on the type of family you were born into, that's what your life was destined to become. So if you were born into an impoverished family, some family that was considered to be of low class, then people believed that they couldn't do anything better in their life 
and their life was kind of doomed and they were going to always have a horrible life. And conversely, they believed that people who were born into upper class families with wealth were destined for greatness and would always have this really great life. And people thought that only people who were born into well-off families were kind of worthy or noble. And the Buddha was really helping people in all different aspects of his teachings to see that this just isn't the truth, that it's based on our decisions that lead to certain results in our life. It's not based on where we're born. It's based on our actions. And that's what the natural law of gamma is all about is this cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. And here he's explaining how someone can be born into a low family and they can actually continue to do harmful things in their life will end up as being a very challenging and difficult life. And ultimately they will be reborn into the lower realms, particularly he describes here in hell. This is going from darkness to darkness, from a low class family with challenging difficulties to sustain your life and receive the basic necessities to continuing to do unwholesome moral conduct. And now you're going to continue to have difficulties throughout your life because of that. And then you're going to be reborn into even a worse situation than you're in right now as a human being in this impoverished family. And then he describes this being who would be someone who would be going from darkness to light. Someone who, yeah, is reborn in difficult situations where the basic necessities are hard to come by. This is being born into the darkness. But then through learning this wisdom of these teachings, then makes wiser and wiser decisions, wholesome decisions, walking towards the light. Now we experience and improve results in this life. And should we be reborn, then we're going to be reborn in this better destination. But again, the goal is not to do that. The goal is to actually experience enlightenment in this life. But this is someone who would be going from darkness to light. And then, of course, there's the other variations of this going from light to darkness, which would be being born into an affluent family, a well-off family, but then making very unwholesome decisions. And that leads to unwholesome results. And then there's the other option, which is being born into an affluent family, being very easy to acquire certain things that you need to sustain your life, and then making wholesome decisions and leading to wholesome results. Again, you shouldn't believe what the Buddha is teaching here. You can look at this and you can see, is it true? You know, Have you or do you know of people that have been reborn into this human life and they're poor and they're impoverished and they continue to make unwise decisions and it leads to further harm. That's darkness to darkness. Have you ever known anybody who was born into kind of a difficult situation, into poverty, but because of their decisions, their wise and wholesome decisions led them to an improved results in this life. This is going from darkness to light. We might call this like rags to riches in today's life, right? This is darkness to light is what the Buddha was describing. And then additionally, have you known someone who was born very rich and very wealthy and very well off and had all the best things in life that could be afforded in life based on the family that they were born into, but as a result of their unwholesome decisions, they started deteriorating in their life, ended up being very dark or very difficult. You know, there's examples of this 
that you can see in the public. And then likewise, you might have seen people who were born very well off, very affluent, who continue to make wise decisions and wholesome decisions, and then they continue to experience the benefits of those wholesome decisions. So you don't need to believe this. You can actually learn it, you can reflect on it, and then you practice it. Practicing it would be if you were born into an impoverished family, into a family that's considered to be of a low class, then you can keep your head up and you can continue to walk forward in life knowing that you can improve the results of your life in this life and any future lives by even though you were born into an impoverished family, you can gain wisdom. You can now make wiser and wiser choices that lead to improved results. And if you were born into a well-off family, don't take that for granted and do unwholesome things that leads to more unwholesome results because that's going to just continue to make things more complicated for you in this life and any future lives. Instead, realize that, wow, you were quite fortunate to have made certain decisions in previous lives to be reborn into a wealthy family and a pretty well-off family. And now you're not going to be complacent about that. You're going to instead continue to learn, build your wisdom, and continue to make wiser and wiser, more and more wholesome decisions. So we can see that it's not based on where we're born and what family we're born into. We can attain enlightenment no matter what family we were born into. And this is what the Buddha was helping people to see, that they could improve the condition of their mind and the condition of their life no matter where you were born. And then conversely, no matter where you were born, you can make your life worse too. It's all about the results of your decisions. Questions on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right. So we'll move to the next chapter here, which is chapter 37. This is the Eightfold Path. Uh, and then there are some other teachings beyond this. We've covered the Eightfold Path multiple times. So whoever is planning to read this, I don't think that we necessarily need to read the Eightfold Path since we've been studying this in the group learning program and even in this program multiple times. And anybody who hasn't read this yet, you can download these books for free. I think that what we should do is instead focus on the content that's after the Eightfold Path. But before we get into that content, are there any questions from anybody on the Eightfold Path itself? Not seeing any question for this part, teacher. Okay, if anybody has any questions on this, feel free to ask those either in the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically in Zoom to ask your question, and we can discuss the Eightfold Path. But let's spend our time focused on these teachings here, which are things that we haven't actually studied before. And what I'd like to do, Bassam, is I know that there's a couple of different ones here, is let's just do one at a time. Well, okay. Details regarding right action. Here, someone having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. With the nod and weapon led aside, diligent and kindly, he resides compassionate towards all living beings. Having abandoned the taken, taken of what is not given, he abstains from taking what is not given. He does not steal the wealth and property of others in the village or the forest. Having ab abandoned sexual misconduct, he abstains from sexual misconduct. He does not have sexual relations with women who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relatives who are protected by their teachings, who have a husband, 
whose violation entails a penalty or even with one already engaged. Tafagata spoke of the other two of the five virtues, abstaining from lying and using substances that cause headlessness in the same way. Okay, so here the Buddha is just kind of talking about the five precepts in a slightly different way and just kind of relating it more closely to right action and really kind of expanding on that. If you've seen the five precepts in the words of the Buddha, which are in volume one, and they're also in volume three of this book series, you'll see the detailed teachings on each one of these precepts there. So let's see what questions you guys have about any of this first before we go to the next one. Mm, doesn't appear that there are questions for this part, teacher. Okay, so let's go to this one. This is something we haven't really discussed before in this program. Right action, twofold. And what monks is right action? Right action, I say, is twofold. There is right action that is affected by tense, production of merit, ripening on the side of attachment. And there is right action that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path. And what monks is right action that is affected by tense, production of merit, ripening on the side of attachment, abstaining from killing living beings, abstaining from taking what is not given, a abstaining from misconduct and sensual pleasures. This is right action that is affected by tense, production of merit, ripening on the side of attachment. And what monks is right action that is noble, taintless, world transcending, a factor of the path. The elimination from the three kinds of bodily misconduct, the abstaining, refraining, abstaining from them is in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is taintless, who possesses the noble path and is developing the noble path. This is right action that is noble, taintless, worldly, transcending, a factor of the path. Okay, so let's talk about this one. There's two aspects to craving desire attachment okay there's distancing yourself from something that there's craving desire attachment to that would be what the buddha is describing here as abstaining you're abstaining from something you've distanced yourself from it but the craving is still in the mind but you're practicing something like right action where you're not doing it but there's still the craving in there this is what the first part that the Buddha is talking about. This is considered right action, but it's still affected by the taints. There's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind. There's production of merit, meaning that's beneficial for your life, but there's still this attachment that's there that has the potential to re-arise in the mind. So that's one aspect of right action or any of these teachings really. And then there's the second part, which is once you've eliminated the craving 100%. This is where not only have you abstained from a certain action, for example, but now you've eliminated the actual craving from the mind. So it's twofold. In order to practice these teachings and get to enlightenment, you need to abstain from the action of killing, but the mind has to also eliminate the craving to kill, right? The mind needs to abstain from the action of taking what is not given. The mind needs to abstain from stealing, but the craving to steal needs to also be eliminated from the mind. That would be taintless, right? And then there's abstaining from misconduct of sensual pleasures. 
So there's abstaining from sexual activity or abstaining from cheating on your partner or something like this. But there can still be the craving in there that produces unwholesome results. So in order to fully purify the mind, you have to first abstain from something and then you have to work on completely purifying the mind to eliminate the craving desire attachment. Otherwise, this craving desire attachment can reemerge. It can re-arise in the mind. What you're doing in terms of getting to enlightenment is you need to obliterate craving at the stump so that it's no longer subject to future arising. And in order to do that, usually the first step is to abstain from something for a period of time. And then while you're abstaining from that thing, you're working on eliminating the craving in the mind. That's the twofold aspect of right action. But it's not just right action that this applies to. It applies to all craving, desire, attachments. But the Buddha is just talking about it here in terms of right action. He talks about it in other places in terms of other things. So whenever you have a certain craving, desire, attachment, the first thing you should try to do is you should try to distance yourself from it. Then while you're distancing yourself from it, observe that the mind's going to be discontent. And then while you're abstaining from it, work on eliminating the craving from the mind. And these things that he's talking about, things like killing, the reason why killing happens is because of craving. The reason why we steal is because of craving. The reason why we have sexual misconduct or we indulge in sensual pleasures is because of craving. So even though he doesn't use the word craving anywhere in this entire teaching, that's what it's all coming back to, is that when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to motivate unskillful conduct. And here we're talking about bodily actions or right action. So as long as there's craving, desire, attachments in the mind, it's going to motivate this unskillful conduct and the person's going to be engaging in killing beings and stealing and having sensual pleasures and sexual misconduct and other things as well. So when you're working on eliminating craving, desire, attachment, it's really helpful to abstain from the action or abstain from the argumentative speech, since that's what we were talking about with Amina, but then the mind's going to still have the craving, even though you're abstaining from the argumentative speech or you're abstaining from the wrong action or whatever it is, there's still going to be that craving that the mind's struggling to let go of. And you got to understand that to get to enlightenment, you're not just abstaining from the action. You're not just abstaining from the wrong speech. You're actually eliminating the craving that's motivating the mind to actually do that. So this is why you can't get to enlightenment by just following a bunch of rules. If you followed rules that I'm following this rule to not kill, I'm following this rule to not steal, I'm following this rule to not have sexual misconduct or indulge in sensual pleasures. It's just a rule that you're following. Okay, you're abstaining from it. Wonderful. That's the first step. But in order to get to enlightenment and experience a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, you need to do the second part, this twofold practice, where you're eliminating the craving, desire, attachment that's motivating the mind to want to do these things. Because as long as that craving, desire, attachment's in there, even though you're abstaining from something, the mind's still going to be discontent. And one of the examples that I can give you on this is that if you've ever gone a period of time where you didn't have sex, maybe you didn't have a partner, maybe for one year, two years, or three years, you might have been abstaining from sexual contact. 
but the mind still craved it and the mind was still discontent at different times when you weren't able to fulfill that craving. So in order to fully get to enlightenment and make your way all the way to Arahant, the fourth stage of enlightenment, you would need to abstain and then train the mind to eliminate individual cravings that are producing this discontentedness. And that's what he's talking about here in terms of eliminating the three kinds of bodily misconduct so that you abstain from it, you refrain, you abstain from the action, but you also eliminate it from the mind whose mind is taintless. The taintless is the pollution or the defilement or that fetter. As long as there's that pollution in the mind, it's tainted, it's polluted, and it's going to continue to experience discontentedness. Even if you stop the action, but if the mind still has the craving, it's going to still experience the discontentedness. So that's why the Buddha says to really practice right action, you need to get to this noble, taintless, world transcending a factor of the path where you're not just abstaining from a certain action, but you've eliminated the craving that's in the mind that's trying to motivate you to want to do those things. So that's what he's talking about here. Any questions on this particular teaching? Yes, teacher. A question from Anel. She writes, how would one know for oneself a craving has been completely eliminated from the mind? What affirmations would, would we observe? Would it be to train the mind to recognize it each time the craving should resurface? Yes, there's a couple of things you can look at, Manal, is that you should feel what craving desire attachment is. You need to utterly be aware of what a craving desire attachment is, either what you've experienced in the past or what you're experiencing now. If you feel your mind pulling towards something, it's longing. You have to deeply understand and feel that pulling of the mind where it's very difficult to restrain the mind. That's what a craving is. So you need to understand what a craving is first. Feel that pulling towards something, the objects of your affection, whether it was a brand new pair of shoes, whether it was a certain relationship or whatever it is, feel the mind pulling towards that thing, right? So once you understand what a craving desire attachment is, now you can see that whenever that's arisen in the mind, there's going to be either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And the way that you know that you've extinguished the craving is that you won't feel the pulling any longer and you won't experience any discontentedness related to a particular craving. So let's just say you have this longing and yearning for a new pair of shoes and you just want them so badly. You can eliminate that in two ways. You can either just go buy the shoes, which will extinguish your craving, but it hasn't really trained the mind to restrain itself. Or you can say, you know what? I've got 30 pairs of shoes in the closet. What is one more pair of shoes going to do for me? Nothing. So let me just not do that and pull the mind back and restrain it and work to eliminate it. Now, it's going to be painful. It's going to feel like a real struggle. But then once the mind stops struggling, that's how you know that you've released the craving because now the mind is no longer yearning or longing for that particular thing. And when you're not experiencing discontentedness, you'll know that the craving has been eliminated. But what can happen 
is these cravings can kind of go dormant if you haven't eliminated it 100%. So you might have a longing for a new pair of shoes and you might be able to restrain your mind in that moment. And it might produce or it will produce this discontentedness in the mind. And then you're kind of over that situation. But then a week later, a month later, two months later, now you want a new watch and you've got two, three, four, five watches at home. What's one more watch? You can't wear five watches at one time. I mean, you could, but you probably wouldn't, right? But the mind's going to long for it. So this is the mind longing for something. So if you feel the mind pulling, the craving's still there. If you still experience conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, the craving's still there. When you eliminate these things, your mind will be peaceful and content because it's no longer pulling towards the objects of its affection. You can walk past a shoe store and be like, hmm, those are nice shoes, but I've already got 30 at home. I don't need any more. Let me keep walking. Where if there's craving, it's going to be like, oh my goodness, look at all these shoes. Let me go take a look. Let me see what's in there, right? The mind's just going to be looking through all these shoes, even though we've got 30 pairs of shoes sitting at home. This is where the mind's craving. And it's going to feel pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But when you've eliminated the craving, no longer pulling, and there's no longer any discontentedness. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's go to this next part of the Eightfold Path, which is detailing wrong livelihood for us. Monks, a household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. What five? Business and weapons, business and living beings, business and meat, business and substances that cause headlessness, and business and poisons. A household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. All right, I'll go ahead and teach this first part, Bossum. So the Buddha is further expanding upon right livelihood for here. And there's multiple teachings where he's layering his teachings and he's pulling back to help you see more and more of what right livelihood is, for example. So he explains it very basically in the Eightfold Path. Then here he explains it to a little bit more detail. And then there's another teaching in volume 12 where he expands it even more. He really expands upon right livelihood. But here, the way that you practice is this gradual practice, is you gradually move towards enlightenment. So that's why there's these layering of teachings. And this first layer of right livelihood is to ensure that you're not practicing any of these wrong livelihoods because these are the livelihoods that cause harm in the world. And if we practice any of these and we base our livelihood or we sustain our life on the selling of weapons, living beings, meat, substances that cause heedlessness or poisons, then we're going to be causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So this is like the first layer of practicing right livelihood is ensuring that you don't practice any of these. But then in volume 12, you're going to see some more content where he expands this more deeply and helps you to understand even more about right livelihood. So let's see if you guys have any questions on any of these five wrong livelihoods before we move on. No question for this part, teacher. All right. So I discussed those in the group learning program quite a bit. So let's see this next one, if you guys have questions on this. But go ahead and read it, Possum. Yeah, okay. So, and what months is wrong livelihood? Skimming, flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. Okay, so here he's talking a bit more about 
how we conduct our livelihood. That, okay, once we've purified our livelihood enough that we aren't practicing one of those five, now within our livelihood, we should ensure that we're not scheming, flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain because this is wrong livelihood. It's going to lead to unwholesome results. Essentially, this scheming is like corruption, backhanded things, right? Like being a doctor is a wholesome livelihood. It's a right livelihood. But if I was kind of scheming in the background, trying to, you know, maybe steal uh, drugs and kind of steal medications and sell them on the street, now I'm starting to do things that are causing harm in the world because of the scheming. Or say if I was a politician and as part of my position as being a politician, I do this scheming and this corruption, this backhanded things based on the position that I hold. Now this is going to cause harm in the world. And the Buddha is saying that we shouldn't do this. And then the flattery is like just kind of saying pleasurable things to people just to kind of get our ways. We have certain selfish desires and things that we're interested in acquiring. And we just kind of flatter people with our words just to kind of get the objects of our affection. And then there's these other things that he talks about here about kind of hinting and belittling. Belittling would be like degrading people, talking down to people about one's work. And then pursuing gain with gain is just pursuing and practicing a certain livelihood out of the sake of wanting profit. So let's just say like you have no interest in selling pizza whatsoever, but you just heard that, you know, having a pizza shop, it's like a great way to make a lot of money. So you go and open this pizza shop just because you want to make a lot of money, not because you have a real passion for it, not because you have a real interest to feed people and provide quality food, but just because you want to make a whole lot of profit. Now your decisions in your business are going to be motivated by this greed, by this craving, and you're not going to be able to really practice a purified livelihood because you're just pursuing gain with gain. So what you'll see in the deeper teachings about right livelihood is the Buddha talks about kind of finding this livelihood that is not affected by the taints or is not affected by defilement, not as affected by craving, that we essentially find livelihood that we have a real interest in practicing in order to benefit humanity, essentially, not just performing a livelihood because we're trying to make profit. In these different things here, I actually added these into volume one. For those of you guys that have been studying with me for a little while, you probably haven't seen the updated version of uh, volume one in the last one month or so. I've added descriptions in volume one of these individual things so that you can see very clearly what these are. And they're also in volume 12 as well. So you'll see them in there as well. Any questions on this one? No question this time, teacher. All right. We'll go to chapter 38. Yes, let's go to Miranda. Monks develop the path and the way that leads to the destruction of craving. And what is the path that leads to the destruction of craving? It is the seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, the enlightenment factor of joy, the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the enlightenment factor of concentration, the enlightenment factor of equanimity. When this was said, the venerable Udayi asked the perfectly enlightened one, venerable sir, how are the seven factors of enlightenment developed and cultivated so that they lead to the destruction of craving? Here, Udayi, a monk develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, 
which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will. When he develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release, which is immense, superb, measureless, without ill will, craving is abandoned. With the abandoning of craving, unwholesome comma is abandoned. With the abandoning of unwholesome comma, discontentedness is abandoned. All of the seven factors of enlightenment are explained in the same way to include the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration with the final factor being described in the same way as in below. We can skip over this paragraph, Miranda. This is equanimity read in the same exact way. Yes. Thus, Udayi, with the destruction of craving comes the destruction of unwholesome karma. With the destruction of unwholesome karma comes the destruction of discontentedness. Okay, here the Buddha is describing and answering this question about the seven factors of enlightenment. We talk about this in the group learning program, and we've talked about the seven factors of enlightenment at other times as well. And I've explained the seven factors of enlightenment as a tool to help you train the mind. And here you can see that in the Buddha's words. If you haven't already seen other words of the Buddha related to the seven factors of enlightenment, because oftentimes people think of the seven factors of enlightenment as these are the seven factors that determine if you are enlightened. And that's not actually true. That's not what these actually are. These are essentially seven tools to help you get to enlightenment. That's what these really truly are, is that the Buddha describes practicing mindfulness as a guard for the mind, that mindfulness is awareness of mind. And by having awareness of mind, we're actually guarding the mind from any discontentedness. And we can observe certain arising of craving, anger, and ignorance, and then we can work to arise generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And then he describes these other factors as well and how this really helps us in order to train the mind to eliminate craving. So he talks about the seven factors as a tool that we can use in order to train the mind here to abandon craving because by abandoning craving, we abandon the creation of unwholesome karma. All unwholesome karma is produced by craving, anger, and ignorance. Every single bit of it. And every single bit of wholesome karma is produced by generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So by eliminating craving with something like the seven factors of enlightenment, and also I share in other programs how we use breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to help us eliminate craving, then you're eliminating that aspect of the mind. Therefore, the mind won't be making decisions through this unwholesome root of craving. Therefore, your decisions will be more purified because you're not making them through craving. Instead, you're making them through generosity. And then you will produce wholesome decisions rather than these tainted decisions or these polluted decisions because craving is all about pleasing the mind. It's a very selfish desire. Craving, the mind wants the objects of its affection. So when we make decisions based in craving, based on our own selfish desires, it's going to produce unwholesome results. It's going to produce unwholesome karma. So when we abandon this craving, these pursuit of our own selfish desires, and we start making decisions based on generosity for this particular antidote, now we start making decisions in the best interest of others, 
not only ourselves but others as well, and therefore will produce wholesome results for us. And the Buddha describes here how each one of these seven factors are leading towards these improvements to the condition of the mind, uh, where the mind will experience this freedom from strong feelings and elimination. This maturing and release, what this is all about is that as you're actually practicing this path and you feel certain cravings in the mind and you become very aware because of mindfulness of what those cravings are, you can actually get to a point where you literally feel the craving releasing from the mind. So when you kind of prepare and train and practice with breathing mindfulness meditation, with generosity and all the other factors of the path, you can actually get to a point where you feel certain cravings release from the mind. And as this does, you experience this peacefulness in the mind, this calmness in the mind, this serenity in this contentedness, this joy as the cravings are eliminating from the mind. And the Buddha just explains this a bit here more fully with all the different factors of the seven factors of enlightenment. Any questions on this particular chapter? No question, teacher, this time. Okay. And by the way, here in this book, as well as in other books, I've detailed what the seven factors of enlightenment are and describing them and giving you a bit more of the Buddha's words around the seven factors of enlightenment. So that particular chapter that we just read, while it talks about using the seven factors of enlightenment to eliminate craving, you would need to know what the individual factors are in order to apply them in your practice and how to apply them in your practice. So there's other points in this book series and other parts of the teachings that I share that detail these individually and how to actually apply them. So feel free to explore those and or ask questions about them as you need them. Chapter 39. Anyone can produce Nibbana enlightenment. And Vataranda are the six classes. One, here someone of the black class produces a black state. Two, someone of the black class produces a white state. Three, someone of the black class produces Nibbana enlightenment, which is neither black nor white. Four, thin, someone of the white class produces a black state. Five, someone of the white state of the white class produces a white state. Six, and someone of the white class produces Nibbana enlightenment, which is neither black nor white. Should I read the rest of the chapter? Let me just take a look here. It's quite long. Let me just say some things here. And then since you guys probably have read this, we'll just open up to any questions. Some things to understand here is that the Buddha is saying anyone can attain enlightenment. Oftentimes, what people are led to believe is that you have to be a monk or you have to be a female ordained practitioner in order to attain enlightenment, that you somehow, by shaving your hair and putting on an orange robe, somehow that automatically qualifies you to attain enlightenment, where someone who lives at home can't do that, can't attain enlightenment. This isn't true. Anybody can attain enlightenment, whether you're in the ordained lifestyle or you're in the household lifestyle. If only ordained practitioners could attain enlightenment, you would see that on the Eightfold Path, because the Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. So if everybody was required to be ordained, you would see a step. Not only right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood and all the rest, but you would see right lifestyle. And then the teaching would be 
you're required to ordain in order to attain enlightenment. And you don't see that because it's not true. That's not what the Buddha taught. Instead, he taught that all beings can attain enlightenment. And while there's different pros and cons between the ordained lifestyle and the household lifestyle, all beings can attain enlightenment. The next thing that I would like to, all beings in terms of all human beings, the next thing that I would like to share on this particular chapter is that in this particular chapter, we hear language where the Buddha is saying things like black class produces black state, a black class produces white state. Nowadays in our society, there's people who have hatred towards one ethnic group or another ethnic group, or they may be very fond of one ethnic group or another ethnic group. And oftentimes this uh, color of black and white are used in order to arise hatred and that people should fear each other and they should be at odds with each other. Here, the Buddha is not doing that because this is something that's happened long after the Buddha's lifetime. Like nowadays, this is what people are doing. During the lifetime of the Buddha, you know, he lived 2,500 years ago in a region of the world that everybody was essentially of this similar ethnic group. Uh, there weren't black people and white people necessarily. I'm sure they're they were starting to kind of integrate here and there at different places. And of course, there were people of different ethnicities in different parts of the world. But in terms of where the Buddha taught, you know, the, the discrimination that was going on at the time was based on where you were born in terms of a low family or a high family. It wasn't based on the color of your skin. Nowadays, we see discrimination and racism based on the color of our skin, based on our sexual orientation, based on our ethnicity, based on a whole lot of other things. And where we're used to seeing people nowadays use this black and white in a discriminatory way, and that's why our mind might be conditioned to think about the use of this black and white, it's important to understand that the Buddha wasn't doing that because those things didn't exist during his lifetime. He was just using kind of this analogy of the darkness in the light. Walking towards the light is enlightenment or this white, right? And then there's this darkness or being in the dark. And then there's this enlightenment that he's talking about, which is neither black nor white, right? It's in the middle. So I would just share that with you because as you read the Buddhist teachings, sometimes people get a bit hung up based on their conditioning of their past experiences in life. And they see these words and they think maybe the Buddha is being racist by using this white and black. But that's not the case because this whole racism and discrimination based on color of skin didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. That's something that's come about in the last several hundred years. And then we can also have conditioning of other things that kind of affect us in terms of if you see the Buddha talking to a certain gender, talking to a male or a female, and he's telling or he's guiding a woman of how to be a very good wife, you might think because of the conditioning of how women are sometimes degraded in society today, that maybe the Buddha's teachings are, you know, kind of teaching women that they should be subservient and that they should you know, be housekeepers and stuff like this. But instead, you can understand that the Buddha was teaching the people at that lifetime based on their culture and based on what they were experiencing. So if he was talking to a woman 
who was a homemaker and who was a stay-at-home mom, and he's gonna deliver teachings to that woman that's going to help her in her situation. And if he was talking to a businessman who was a businessman and conducting himself in business, then he's gonna teach to that businessman. But that's not to say that a woman can't be a business person, and that's not to say that a man can't stay at home and take care of their family, but it's just that they've captured his teachings when he happened to be talking to this businessman and when he happened to be talking to this female that was staying at home. So it's important that we get rid of our own conditioning, thinking that the Buddha is perhaps using problems that we have today that didn't necessarily exist during his lifetime. The conditioning that we're experiencing in our own mind might be looking at the Buddha's words and somehow thinking that there's something wrong with the way that he's explaining something here. So I just would like to share that with you so that if you experience any of that arising coming up in the mind of seeing these words of black and white, that you put that to the side and just realize that he's using colors to draw the contrast. He could have easily been saying purple and pink or green and yellow or something like that. But these base colors, which some people say aren't even colors, this black and white, it provides us kind of the spectrum or this the shading to understand something in terms of black and white where purple and green don't produce the same contrast in the mind. So what questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? We have a question from Anand. She writes, a question arose related to ignorance, creating unwholesome karma. When a human being is first born in this world, it is understood that they are born with ignorance. Then there could be an adult human being who has lived a fuller life of experience, but still choose to act with ignorance, creating unwholesome karma. What is the difference between unwholesome karma generation in these examples? So the Buddha describes that trying to understand the exact results of karma would lead to either frustration or madness. So keep that in mind as we talk here, that we saw that in other parts of his teachings, that if we try to discern the exact result of certain decisions, that it can lead to frustration or madness. So while I can give you an answer to this question, it's important that you don't try to look at this in such an exact way and feel like there's only one way, right? So if we took a, a young child, let's say a six-year-old child, who were to uh, kill, let's just say a, a six-year-old child killed another human being versus a 40-year-old a man who killed a human being. The effect to these individuals is going to be very different from one person to the next. And the reason why is it comes down to intention, right? And this person who's 40 years old, they have much more hatred, anger, and ill will in the mind that led to this particular killing, for example. They knew better. They knew how to make wise decisions. Their full intention was to kill this human being. Or maybe this six-year-old child picked up a gun, didn't realize it was loaded, pointed it at somebody, and pulled the trigger. This person's intention isn't behind the action. They didn't intend to kill. They thought it was a toy, but it still resulted in the same thing an individual died at the end of this action. But because of the intention behind it, it's not going to produce the same results for the six-year-old child versus the 40-year-old man. So I think that's where you're going with your question, Manal, but if you have 
something that you'd like to discuss deeper than that, let me know. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. Okay. So we'll go to chapter 40, which is our last chapter for today's class. Yes, let's go to Miranda. The arising of discontentedness. I have said, Ananda, that discontentedness is dependently arisen. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact. If one were to speak thus, one would be stating what has been said by me and would not misrepresent you with what is contrary to the truth. One would explain in accordance with the teachings and no reasonable consequence of one's assertion would give ground for criticism. Therein, Ananda, in the case of those ascetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by oneself, that is conditioned by contact. Also in the case of those ascetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness is created by another, that too is conditioned by contact. Also in the case of those ascetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness is created both by oneself and by another, that too is conditioned by content. Also, in the case of those ascetics and Brahmins, advocates of Kama, who maintain that discontentedness has arisen randomly, being created neither by oneself nor by another, that too is conditioned by content. Okay, so here the Buddha is driving home the point and really sharing and guiding people to understand that it's contact that produces gamma, that without contact, there can't be any gamma. And here in other chapters, he explained these people that were thinking that gamma was somehow uh, not produced by contact or is produced by other beings, that somehow another being can produce gamma for us, which isn't true, or that Gamma is created both by oneself and another, which isn't true. This isn't actually true. Or that the results of our decisions have arisen randomly, uh, being created neither by oneself or uh, nor by another. This is also not true. It's not what the Buddha actually taught, but he's just saying, if somebody believes this way, there needs to be contact. It's contact which is dependent to production of wholesome or unwholesome gamma. So he says and describes this contact as being a condition of gamma in other parts of his teachings. And then here's just another place, him describing it as contact being the dependency to create gamma, but he's just sharing it in a different way and kind of casting it in a different light. So any questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right. So I'll just end this here, and I would like to go back to the question that Manal asked as well, just to kind of add a couple of other things where she was mentioning about, or she asked about, you know, what's the results of this young child and this uh, adult doing a similar action? And, you know, what is the results here? You know, I gave you one example of that, but also this is the reason why the Buddha says that, you know, trying to discover and discern the exact result of gamma is either going to lead to frustration or madness. Because not only is the intention behind the action, which is going to help to determine the results of the action, but also it's a matter of what this being has done previous to that too. So you could actually have two people, like we studied in last week, the simile about the lump of salt, where you could have two people who are both 40 years old, 
and both people are male, both people have a very similar life, but both people could do exactly the same action and it produced different results. So what the unrelated mind oftentimes wants to do is it wants to come up with this decision tree and these rules that say, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do that, this is going to happen. But that's not how the natural law of gamma works because that would be permanence if it was exactly that clean. But instead, not only does it matter about the intention behind it, but it also matters about the things that we've done in the past. So certain decisions that we've made, if we've made a whole lot of unwholesome decisions in the past, and we now make another unwholesome decision, it's going to affect us more gravely than if we've had lots of wholesome decisions in the past and we make that same exact decision as the other person, it's not going to affect us as significantly. So this is why trying to discern the exact result of gamma would lead to either frustration or madness because there's too many variables involved to try to figure out exactly, exactly the results. And that's why what you do is instead of trying to figure out exactly, exactly, exactly the result, you do that learning, reflection, and practice that we talked about in today's class where you can see from a general perspective of, yeah, killing beings, not wise. Stealing, not wise. Sexual misconduct, not wise. Argumentative speech, not wise. Idle chatter, not wise. You know, right on down the line. Taking substances that cause heedlessness, not wise. And here's kind of generally what the Buddha is saying that that leads to. But he's not going to say exactly what it leads to because it's going to be different for each person because of all the different variables in, in the world. So it's important to understand the natural law of gamma in the the general nature, but to a certain level of detail that the Buddha is teaching. But when we try to take it in too much level of detail and too much of extreme, that's where the frustration and madness comes from because there's too many variables involved to discern the exact, exact, exact result of any one particular aspect of gamma in certain decisions that we've made. So next week, we'll be finishing up this book, which will be chapters 41 through 45. And there, it's only five chapters. Typically, we're used to studying 10 chapters. So you're welcome to just study the five and have some free time during your week to do some other things. Or you might decide to uh, study some of the other chapters in this book and kind of revisit them. Or you might decide to move ahead and go into the next book, which after this, we're going to move into volume seven, which is the book titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation. So you'll have some time here to you know, kind of take a break this week uh, if you're only going to study the five chapters, or you'll have some time to study some other things if you'd like to reach out and study some other things. And as always, if anybody's needing some personal guidance, you're welcome to schedule an appointment to have some personal guidance. You can do that going to our website, buddhadailywisdom.com, and you can click on the contact us and you'll see a link there in order to uh, schedule a personal guidance in Perhaps this might be a time that you might need that. So feel free to schedule that and realize that that's always available to you. So I'll see you guys in next week's class for this class, which will be chapters 41 through 45. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in chapter 21, which is titled Do No Harm. What is the future of our planet? We're going to be having a discussion around uh, wholesome decisions that we can be making in order to help the planet in terms of our own decisions and our own conduct. And keeping in mind that this aspect of our improving our consciousness and moving to a higher consciousness is not a political thing. This 
decisions to ensure that we're not causing harm in our own life is to also ensure that we're not causing harm to our planet as well. So having a discussion about things that we're actually doing in our own life to ensure that we're not causing harm to the planet can be really beneficial for us to all kind of share and discuss and have ideas about things that we can be doing to improve our decision making to help ensure that we're not causing harm to the planet. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So you're welcome to attend Wednesday's class and come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So I'll see you either next Saturday, maybe Sunday or Wednesday, maybe all of those days. We'll see you next time. Have a really lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.